um, when we're making decisions or thinking. And our claims and assumptions um, do need to be questioned. If they are not questioned, um, we may be um, smuggling in um, erroneous uh, presumptions, and this is how a purely um, rational, logical argument that we are so convinced because it is logical can be so wrong. The problem is actually in the assumptions we've made that we haven't investigated and justified. So there's a second thing that does need to be taken into account. Thirdly is the method of approach. When one's method of, of approach is exclusive, as I've pointed out above, we will not um, be able to take account of all relevant factors. It is important to be inclusive, but that doesn't mean that something is um, verified by that means. It simply means investigation of the factor or data being offered does need to be made and made critically and scientifically. Fourthly and fifthly, there's two very important factors that really come very closely together. Very often we argue that we are scientific and um, I'm sure that one is acting scientifically and critically, but one of the things in when I was doing my work with Sir John Kendrew was um, the fact that we were able to see that the principles of scientific inquiry do need to employ both logical and empirical constraints and checks and that these need to cross-check each other. In other words, if some form of reasoning, argument, assumption is made that's, that arises through creative thought or inspirational thinking, it's cognitive at that level, it does need to be tested empirically for its justifiability and its defensibility. <coughs> at the same time, empirical findings can't just simply be deduced and extrapolated from without careful reflection and tracing the implications. The two areas of thought, scientific and humanities, um, do need to work together for they're able to cross-check each other and that's what the scientific method is truly about. However, we can claim to be being scientific because we've used an experiment or perhaps we're being critical because we've been entirely logical and rational in the form of our argument. But if any aspects of, that I've already mentioned above have not been checked, it is so easy for error to, to slip in. Now, having done all of that in each of our disciplines, um, the work that we did showed that um, if we are going to open up new horizons of learning, we do need open, two-way, respectful exchange between researchers and between disciplines. So it may be perhaps between two conflicting theor uh, theoretical positions within a discipline, or it may be um, conflicts like between science and religion, um, where we um, there is a standoff uh, view to each other, or worse still, um, those who are scientific but believers sometimes smuggle in um, unreflected um, religious thoughts and then try to defend these from science or, or the other way round. And in each case, we are saying that um, vulnerability to error is made um, possible if critical procedures haven't been taken in each of the disciplines 
and then respectful, open, two-way exchange um, undertaken. Those then are the six principles which we can very often check over our work and um, be sure where errors might have crept in. I think at the moment the CERN um, situation with the um, neutrinos is something where these principles are certainly needing to be applied profoundly. When it comes to human life and to our world and to human relations and very many um, national relations and global ones indeed, um, we cannot help escape the fact that social processes and um, exchange are fundamental. And in this um, uh, work, um, I, in saying to you that um, I've moved for the fact that most, whether they're believers or non-believers or atheists or whatever, um, very few will argue against the fact that love, um, the highest love, even what theologians may call divine love, um, is, um, would dispute that. Um, but to unpack that into practical terms seems very, very important, especially when we're working in a psychological area or social one um, or one in which we are um, dealing with personal relations and personal um, agencies. So there, we've already talked about those, but let me reiterate them again. Transparency, um, ways we can check them. Now, we don't check it by saying, look, I think you're being dishonest. In actual fact, the empirico-cognitive approach, that's the six principles, can help establish through close examination of factors or of situations whether or not dishonesty is being um, indicated. I think that the Levinson report is, um, um, at the moment, with those people giving testimony, um, it just can't be taken straightforwardly, but it does require very critical empirical and uh, cognitive analyses of what's being said. And then, of course, within that, um, have we... Uh, are we acting in a manner that we are extorting or torturing rather than where there's compassion um, and understanding? So humility, truth, these things are easily, um, and transparency particularly, um, are easily um, worked. <coughs> One last factor that I want to bring out is the reason why I am not tonight arguing from any particular Christian doctrine stance. I believe that if our work is to be very serious, theologians included, then we do in fact need to find common ground in which each of us in our different disciplines can sit down with respectful um, understanding and enter into proper dialogue and exchange with the hope that new insights can come and um, errors or weaknesses in our thinking may dis be disclosed. My view is that all academic scholars, regardless of their interest or area of exp expertise, do all need to work critically in any research that is being undertaken. A presumed or assumed stance which is held without question or a belief, however relig religious or impassioned, political or ethical, assumed without question of the basis of such belief, 
is ultimately indefensible in an academic arena, and those of us who work in theology and religious studies are certainly very well of the, those lacks and, uh, that have led to very great disaster in our world. Medical scientists, in conversation with biologists, philosophers, ethicists or theologians, do each need to take full account of the academic credibility and justifiability of their approach. And therefore, I've put before you um, a republished book of a, a very um, renowned thinker here, uh, who was one who who's, was, is not alive now and was not alive when I came, but uh, I managed to come to work with one of the professors who knew him well, and that is the work of Austin Farrer. This book has been republished, and I'm just giving you the um, um, picture of it. It's in our St. Cross Library, and it's also in the Theology Library, and I'm even willing to sell it to students uh, for £5, more than half price at the moment. But in it, it has a new foreword which um, shows why his metaphysics um, is important for our 21st century. Notice that there's a question mark at the end of A Science of God. His particular interest has been to bring together the, a multi, was to bring together a multidisciplinary, inclusive, critical approach. And as a renowned philosopher and theologian of this university, who was um, a warden of Keeble College until his unexpected and sudden death, um, he gave tremendous um, uh, insight and uh, intrigue of learning to philosophers, scientists of belief and of non-belief. He was well ahead of his time, however, and his work um, uh, has only come into its own because it's most typical, it's most important now in the 21st century when um, multidisciplinary inquiry has been recognised by many of the biosciences particularly as so vital to understand. If we are not to make um, hazardous decisions in our human social decision making, our policy making, these are the factors that we do need to take into account. The form of cross-disciplinary, uh, oh, I just want to say that uh, Austin Farrer, the first chapter, is extremely helpful um, and um, for not only for those um, looking at how theology and science, uh, theology taking account of the demands of science, does need to acknowledge certain factors and cannot go on making great presumptions in authoritarian ways um, as they have in the past. He deals with that very um, profoundly. He then goes on to show how these principles will operate in making in human life itself and what uh, a holistic view of human life is. And obviously I can't cover that all here, but that's, that's a, that first chapter is an important one to make reference to. Now this is to show you that um, the theologian can stand there with, seriously with any other discipline if we're serious in our um, studies ourselves and in observing the um, six principles I've said are essential for serious critical work. It's when we do that kind of work that we will be able to come to um, if we recognise where there is convergence of our findings across the dis 
disciplines, recognise where the contradictions are and where the conflicts arise, and then be able to pinpoint the areas that need further investigation. At this point, before I take you into this example that I've managed to put up a little bit too early, but um, I just want to make reference to a very um, wonderful writer. He happens to be, have been appointed the Trade Minister of the present coalition government, Lord Green. But his work, um, which has been very much in the economics area, um, is extremely interesting to uh, examine. His book called Good Value, Reflections on Money, Morality and an Uncertain World, is available in the Nuffield College Library. But what's most important is his chapter 8, where he begins to talk about prisons. He does many other very important things. He, he looks at the historical background. He says that we mustn't uh, overlook that. Uh, we mustn't make fast judgments, very much all the things I've been saying today. But he says that most of us, where we talk about paradigms in uh, academics, he talks <coughs> about these as prisms. And he says that we make assumptions, values and beliefs and incorporate even non-belief into these. But the, we, we use these as our, our judgments, but we often haven't examined the knowledge and the criteria of judgment we're making. And I think that that's very important when it comes to um, ethics. And this is why I've decided to put up this example drawn from the book written by Peter Vardy and Paul Grosch. It's the revised edition uh, that came out in 1999 and it's an extremely interesting, helpful book called The Puzzle of Ethics for those who are new to the area of ethics. Three surgeons might be discussing the pros and cons of how best to treat Alzheimer's disease. The degenerative brain disease, which results in the loss of memory, identity, and human purpose. Surgeon A claims that the newly discovered method of using tissue from discarded human embryos and injecting it into the brains of Alzheimer's sufferers offers the best hope for the future. Then there's Surgeon B. Although confirming its clinical success, Surgeon B claims that the practice has such a potentially immoral side to it that it cannot be condoned. So Surgeon B argues that there is the real possibility of poor people being financially induced by rich people to deliberately conceive and produce embryos which can then be aborted. The tissue from the aborted feti could um, subsequently be freeze-stored and later used if they, the rich people, were ever in the unfortunate position of suffering from the disease. Then we have Surgeon 3, a third person, who acknowledges the possibilities outlined by Sur Surgeon B, but claims that as long as sufficient legal safeguards are built into the whole process, further research and practice ought to be permitted. Now, we find that they cannot all agree. Surgeon A wants as few safeguards as possible. As a geriatric specialist working from an act utilitarian position, he is concerned with the maximisation of quality of life for all his ageing patients. Surgeon C, working from a rural utilitarian position, wants far greater restriction placed upon the procedure's use in the interests of possible fe fe fetuses 
who can, may be conceived and then terminated <coughs> for purely mercenary ends. Surgeon B, working from either religious or secular deontological principles, wants the procedure banned altogether, despite his deep regret at there not being an equally successful clinical alternative, although there are treatments which are unfortunately less medically efficacious. They decide to speak then with the resident philosopher, so there will be a job for you in the future. Now, on their ethics committee, they, they have this philosopher, and all hospitals are required to have ethics committees, although there is no obligation for them to invite philosophers to become members. The philosopher herself may, of course, be persuaded of the overall benefits of normative ethics, and hence may advise following one of the two broad routes, the deontological or the utilitarian offered by the three surgeons. But then she may uh, be persuaded of what um, he calls the meta-ethical view. Um, that's the purely um, secondary um, uh, activity, secondary activity uh, view. And that is de deals with just theoretical questions and not with ethics it's itself and its substance. And her task then would simply be to try to clarify the language used by the doctors refine the arguments for and against each position, and then retire again to Olympian detachment without recommending any route at all. She will claim that the surgeons are involved in the first order activity. She is there simply as a second order clarifier. Now, I've been saying that, in fact, um, you, you can't just detach yourself so easily um, from your feelings and thoughts and, and values. Um, you can try to be as independent as possible and perhaps do the kind of uh, philosophical task commended here. But on the whole, um, that doesn't often work. We end up with confusion, but although philosophical work, and I'm suggesting use of the empirico cognitive principles, enables us to clarify things and perhaps make a, a, have a better way of resolving the problems. So whose ethics um, shall we um, go for? How are we going to make that decision um, and come to some kind of resolution? Um, of course, you're going to suspect that I'm going to promote my empirico-cognitive principles here, but they are very important to take into account. Which principles and which guidelines are we going to use or are we using if we are in a situation where we do have to not only resolve an ethical dilemma, but commend a way forward within it and make judgments and uh, decisions that we can feel can be justified as ethical. Is there a way that we can avoid the hazards and pitfalls, some of which have been so deleterious in our world today? Let me come back to Stephen Green's uh, view, Lord Green, on prisons that he says we all work with. I'm quoting because I think it makes it very clear what he's commending. We nevertheless interpret and judge our experience, he says, through a prism, whether we like it or not. We cannot avoid this, for we see inevitably through the prism of a metaphysical and moral framework. That's what we work with. That's us. Our prism is a metaphysical one in that it reflects our understanding of the origin, nature, and value of being and beings, that's human beings, and it is a moral framework in that we cannot avoid judgment, not just valuation, 
but evaluation. The prism of ours may be a specific set of religious beliefs, as we saw in the case of the Alzheimer's, entailing an explicit and elaborate moral code. It may be a set of religious beliefs implying some broader moral principles rather than a detailed code, which we strive to make applicable to specific situations of life. It may alternatively be a set of moral principles devised from our own judgments and reflections without any religious basis. We, we could be humanist. Because we are either <coughs> agnostic or atheist with implications accordingly for our metaphysical physical framework, we, we may not be working with any kind of religious presumptions. And these moral principles may be based on a detailed ideology about the way societies should be, or they may be minimalist and laissez-faire. Um, he, he points out all the time that sometimes we're so laissez-faire, we, we think we're being moral, and we, but we haven't even examined what our real values are. Alternatively, of course, our moral prism may be one of pure self-interest, as we've seen happening in the marketplace. The aim at moral principle, allied either to an atheistic metaphysic or a Faust-like one, to a metaphysical reality we seek to control. Some people, says Green, can articulate their metaphysics, and some religious people do, and atheists do, and humanists often do. Many don't or can't. And some people think out their moral principles consciously and rationally, but any, in, uh, many others live with moral frameworks that are inherited from previous generations and are often only partly recognised for what they are and where they come from. And he's trying to point out why, ethically, we end up with so many problems and quarrels, because this is one of the areas where our lack of uh, our <coughs> naivety, our simpli simplicity of thought... Um, or reflection can in fact lead to our making decisions that are really uh, lack integrity or lack soundness. And usually our, usually our moral framework is related at least partly to our metaphysical framework. So I'm, I think I disagree with my meta-ethics person that you can simply um, uh, siphon off first order activity or you, you are dealing with secondary activity. I think that when we're making judgments, we uh, tend to incorporate these two uh, re react, um, uh, dynamically and we need to know how to make the decision in it. So in cross-disciplinary exchange, how can we be more scientific? Is there a way by which we can achieve this? And one of the things I wanted to raise in this lecture is to say, are there questions that can be asked by the humanities, either from philosophy or theology, that have very great importance in the sciences and vice versa? I believe that there are, that we um, often can see through logical, careful, analytical thinking of what's being offered um, and the implications that flow from some um, scientific work, particularly in the biomedical fields, that require further investigation. And similarly, we can be making presumptive claims that do need to be tested scientifically. Well, of course, I think you knew that I was going to come back and say, well, the empirico-cognitive approach is designated as um, moving to achieve that end. 
The six principles are both empirical and cognitive, and I've said these need to be applied interactively and together, not just a top-down argument, which comes from a rational presumption, or a bottom-up argument that may come from an empirical search, but what I call a middle-out approach, where empirical and cognitive matters are taken stringently into concern in any inquiry. At the same time, we do need to probe what values and uh, criteria we're working by, and the greatest love in the world, I believe, can unpack the agape to uh, factors that will not be disputed by um, the majority of people. A multidimensional, um, critical and inclusive method of approach is the one that is commended, and I've got not just multidisciplinary, but saying, let us open ourselves fully to the possibilities of what may be there on the horizons of learning and beyond. Um, and I believe that it's often through the arts that we are alerted to the greater wonder of our world through the music and the arts, and a, a multidimensional uh, recognition and acknowledgement of life will take us further. Let us also be aware that we need to meet the demands of science, probe all the relevant data critically, um, be inclusive, that we don't simply exclude, like some sociologists put um, values on the shelf because they're rather emotive and they don't know how to handle them. I'm saying unpack them in critical terms, examine the values and beliefs that are held, or non-beliefs, and that is the way by which stigma and prejudice and bias will, in fact, be exposed. It's these principles that can expose error and our vulnerability to error, which my work here in Oxford has been able to develop, and establish the facts of a case, even in the humanities, as best possible. I just quickly put before you three examples where unless these factors have and, and the failure to apply them in the past, particularly in the Stephen Lawrence trial, where they're finding they, they misnamed um, the bags and, um, that had the um, Stephen's blood in, and now the convicted, um, those convicted of murder are able to say, well, um, we're, that just managed to come across from the bags and contaminate our clothing, so we're not guilty. Uh, very, very difficult. And above all, I wanted to draw your attention to a publication, a most recent one, by Thomas Banchoff in, on embryo politics, how politics has got caught in the, in the issues about embryos with ethics and the drama that now involves this and how often with emotion and lack of critical um, approach, it's just so easy to be pushed by powers that be uh, to make decisions that will be deleterious in the long term. He discusses these four factors in his book, The Main Contours of Ethical Controversy, The Evolution of Ethical Conflict, The Ethical contest Contestation <coughs> to Political uh, Policy Struggle, and the, he then discusses the two phases of embryo politics and suggests, ask the question, what is the way forward? I thought this quote at the end of his introduction is a very interesting one from uh, Banchoff. His book is in the Nuffield College Library. A willingness to confront and debate new issues through constructive di dialogue will not guarantee wise policy decisions going forward. 
but it will make them more likely. Thank you very much, Margaret. I'll uh, open the floor for questions. I should just say, um, we, it's our policy to record your questions and they get podcast on the Euro Centre website. However, if you ask your question and then you think to yourself, hang on, I don't want that recorded, um, come and see me after the talk and we'll arrange to have it deleted. So, um, so, so at a certain point, Margaret, when you talked about worldview, you, you, you said, well, worldview needs to be open and unlimited, and you, um, you mentioned Richard Dawkins as a kind of an example of someone who lacked the appropriate worldview. But well, I, well didn't, didn't have an open one, yeah. But I could imagine Dawkins um, saying on his behalf, he said, look, my worldview's open and unlimited. It's just that I've looked at the evidence and I think that um, God doesn't exist and um, the only thing that matters is the selfish gene. It's, you know, I'm perfectly open. It's just that this is where I think the evidence takes me. Is, is, is he making a mistake there? Or maybe just... Oh, well, this is where it. I'd come in with my propaganda. I've got a lot of things on sale here tonight. Um, oh. on, the 20, <laughs> on the 23rd of February... Thursday, 4pm, Sheldonian Theatre, we have arranged for Richard Dawkins to be in dialogue with the Archbishop of Canterbury and Sir Anthony Kenny, the eminent philosopher, to chair it. And the Chancellor of the University will also be present. And soon you'll be able to book tickets. Does that answer the question? <laughs> I, I'm, in con I'm, I'm in conversation with um, Richard Dawkins and um, because I've set up this whole thing. And he's, um, um, he's very amenable where there are proper, open, philosophical exchange that is respectful. He begins to throw rotten tomatoes and other things when he's attacked or ha given terrible things like him, um, the argument for, uh, that I think was put in news of the um, student newspaper when we had um, uh, William Craig Law the other day uh, commending um, uh, through Christian thought, um, uh, the, uh, the ch children and the, the slaying of children as being within the will of God, I certainly couldn't tolerate that, and that was given in the uh, Sheldonian theatre, packed to the roof. I'm going to pack them right into the corridors and everywhere. For this, so make sure you come, right. um, because he has said to me he would like to be in conversation with the Archbishop of Canterbury and Anthony King. And isn't it far better, which I'm suggesting by my principles of knowing, that we use this procedure in times of conflict, even global, international ones, that can help us uh, unpack and um, the problems that come before us. But others may like to come in on the debate, and I, I feel uh, I shouldn't um, just give answers. Just, come in. Yeah, just to piggyback on... Richard Dawkins question. Um, okay, I so okay, so Richard Dawkins, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he's essentially got a materialist ontology. So he's working from within a metaphysics and materialistic on, uh, mm -hmm. metaphysics, mm -hmm. and so that seems to me, and you know, that's not in contradiction with empiricism because you take a healthy human skepticism, mm -hmm. even anti-realism. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 the empirical issues don't come up at all. You know. Um, but the value issues come up 
when you, at least insofar as the values are attached to any kind of ontological conviction about reality or metaphysics. So the question is, um, would your empirical cognitive method, it seems to me, if I interpret some of your steps right, that you could bring a theologian and theoretically materialist into conversation essentially by beginning with the empirico, which is to be you know, grounded in empiricism, and then bring in the cognitive, which would be the, um, I think you were talking about the, trying to unearth the implicit assumptions about metaphysical reality, you know, the ontological reality of what's going on. So it just seemed to me that Richard Dawkins and a theologian in conversation would be a perfect example of how you could start to unpack all the hidden assumptions in any given frame of reference, any given that. Any given So I mean, so, so I was just thinking that was a good example of. I mean, Dawkins does have a very materialistic ontology, but it's usually implicit. Mm. So there's a lot of assumptions in there that don't contradict science. Well, so do theologians. Yeah, yeah, yeah both sides. Mm. So I'm just saying, wouldn't that be a good? I was just piggybacking on that question. Wouldn't that be a good way to bring yeah, the exactly. principles into I, I, Absolutely. I, I want to come back to something you were saying, Steve, that you did deliberately, I'm sure, because you're an Australian like me. <laughs> he likes to bait people. <laughs> and um, a, he, he, he um, comes from Melbourne, though, but he does live in Sydney, which is where right. I live <laughs> or come from. But, um, see, one of the things you said, I think you said um, Dawkins and I baited it slightly. You said he... he believes that religion is um, wrong. You, you, you used a term, a phrase, well, I think saying that's he's it. made up his mind that God... looked at the evidence, God doesn't exist. Yes, I think you said he's view. looked at the evidence. Now, my question is, um, has he looked at all the evidence <laughs> and has he treated it empirico-cognitively? And I want to uh, run, as a true scientist, you've got to run that trial mm -hmm. several times as we're doing a term now with the neutrinos, um, because all sorts of errors and assumptions and could have crept in. And this is the kind of philosophy of action that I believe was being suggested by Austin Farron, which I've been trying to develop here in Oxford and wanting to take further now. A very rich, dynamic philosophy of action that are rather than contrary to what theologians are using as process theology and they get from A and Y but uh, I can debate that over lunch with you if you like. Mm. <laughs> I'd love to. All right, so we'll debate Richard Dawkins uh, <laughs> for that matter. Uh, yeah. further, further questions? Right. Yes, thank you for your paper, Margaret. Um, I was interested in the embryo example. It seems to me if you're talking about neutrinos, I can see how you can put forward the sort of argument that you've made for openness and, and um, transparency in your arguments and objectivity and being aware of the other person's views and listening to the other person. But it seems to me that with the embryo example that you gave, um, what's really a, a, an issue is a number of different values which are going to be weighted by people differently. So I, mean, I did think, why well, think of three surgeons? I mean, it, it, they said, a, your experts seem to have <coughs> some sort of vested interest or something mm. like that. Mm. Um, it seems to me that the best way to resolve that sort of issue is by community discussion in much broader context. So I think that you need to bring in the people who have the disease that might be cured by it and the people that support them. 
And then also, you need to think of the people who are supporting the, the rights of these embryos that may be conceived specifically for this purpose. Uh, and that, that's just two groups. Um, and then I think you have to think about each of the, the values. I mean, if you try to, to if you have a, a therapy that works um, and that can save people straight away, shouldn't that have a higher value than the possibility, in my mind, pretty remote, that people might conceive embryos with a view to selling them to the wealthy people? So I think that you have to. That, my that argument is, is that a very, very, very complex one. Yeah. Yeah. You um, need a very wide debate. Mm, that's where that's, people come yeah. into it, saying where they're coming from and what values they put highest um, in their decision making, um, and they should then discuss it. And most people, I think, will probably put saving the lives of people who are ill highest. I'm not saying they're necessarily the ones who are the commercial production of embryos for this yeah. purpose. Yeah. I'd like to bring Angeliki in on that one. She knows more than me. <laughs> She's studied embryonic well, um, I can see uh, where you're coming from and I can see the point of doing that also. Um, I suppose that if you were to bring together all this, um, the different groups that have some kind of interest in, in this particular debate, then what you might be able to find out is like, or you agree on some kind of middle ground, you say, okay, I'm going to give being that much and you're going to give in that much, and then you can make some kind of compromise between, you know, the two so can come up with a policy that more or less satisfies everybody. But I'm not sure whether that will be the most, like, will um, necessarily be the most ethical, according to the, you know, uh, ethical decision might be the most acceptable one, but the ethic is a different. It's a, something different from compromise or <coughs> finding a middle ground between two extremes. <coughs> and I suppose that what you know maybe uh, the your theory, the political the theory, will be more of a trying to unpack whether views come from and why it is that that informs our particular. Um, understanding of the moral value of the human embryo and the moral value of the human life, and then trying to see whether my assumptions as um, on, on, on your on Dr. Yi's um, guidelines are can hold ground or not, or there's uh, some kind of belief. Or I think it's, it's the, the, it would need to be a bit more unpacking. But yes, this is one way to solve the problem in a very practical sense, but not in a in a very um, ethical meta-ethical sense. Um, I, well, I don't think that, that those surgeons are ever going to agree, however much they sit around and go through the principles of agape. Well, I'm not sure um, about that. First of all, I want to come back on your comment um, that the community thing, which we do in hospitals all the time, with chaplains and social workers present also, is really important. And I would not dispute that. I, I would say that's part of this uh, worldview Thing, it encompasses that and therefore you'd hold workshops and conferences and, and you can get so away in your armchair um, philosophy in your uh, ivory towers you know ab absolutely the empirico cognitive effect like Amartya Sen in uh, economics is arguing we've got to get to the grassroots we've got to bring the two together and we've got to bring east and west together etc etc so I don't disagree with that at all but I don't subscribe to it as the main 
uh, form of approach, I've tried to push something else in as well, which is the empirical cognitive. Because this is because communitarianism and the um, most common denominator is not necessarily able, going to come to what's most profound and intrinsic in understanding what it is that makes us human. Now, but there was another thing that was worrying me a bit in your comment where you added the last bit, which I think Angeliki Karasadu has brought to the fore, and that is the issue of um, commercially producing um, embryos and being able to sell these for uh, saving our, um, our uh, the Alzheimer's. I think that is that, that does absolutely need to be looked at very profoundly, and that you will probably find even those who care for uh, loved ones with Alzheimer's would want to be in on that debate. Well, I don't think anybody's going to say it's a good thing for people to deliberately conceive embryos to be killed for the purposes of treating patients with Alzheimer's, particularly where there's a reward element. Well, if there's no law, against, if there's no law against it... Well, there is a law against no, it, both here and in, in Australia. Yes, but it could be disputed, you see, and it could be undercover. And remember that, on the by analogy, on the economic front, it's where limit there's been limits in um, in regulation, but regulations can be very doctrinaire, um, and therefore we do need the knowledge and the investigation first, and that's why I'm commending an empirico-cognitive approach rather than a straightforward rational one or an opinion one or an emotive one. My feelings are this. And the more passionate I can get, I can force something. Now, this is what can happen in a social and political situation. And we've seen that, we're seeing that in, in particularly in the Middle East at the moment, very tragically. Um, anyway, certainly um, I appreciate your comment, and I think that we should really talk further because the issues are complex and very wide, and they need to be unpacked into categories. And I'm just going back to the Dawkins one. Um, we're very happy to, at the moment, if you have questions you'd particularly like debated at this um, uh, dialogue with Dawkins and the Archbishop and Sir Anthony, uh, I, I don't promise that it will be dealt with, but it, they will be given to the speakers. There will not be questions from the floor, because that will be just too hard to deal with. But if you have questions, do send them through <coughs> to my pigeonhole. I'll be very, I will certainly bring them to the attention. Now, coming back to your embryonic one, that's the, isn't that the fact that all those questions do need to be brought out, looked at more carefully, probed more deeply, and the substance of each dealt with? I mean, maybe you you may think, oh, look, that's too meticulous, and um, uh, but it, it, it's a huge thing we're dealing with. It's life itself, and. I wouldn't consider that it's too difficult. Now you're saying doctors won't ever agree. Well, theologians will never agree <laughs> together, um, even the different religions, but I'm not so sure we aren't. We are working much better together than we have before. If we have these principles that I've delineated, will keep us away from attacking each other and you know, jumping with reaction. I think reaction, conflict, uh, anger are uh, probably the worst things. I'd have to say that as a psychologist for resolving, developing social process and facilitating um, 
human bonding. So I, I don't, no one has a complete answer. I, I certainly don't take my answers tonight. I'm just wanting to feed into the debate. Um, Angeline, you had another one else? Um, if I may, I have two questions. <laughs> uh, one is, you started your talk by uh, discussing whether your theory is a meta-ethical one or a secondary ethics one. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I wonder, well, I don't know if I'm going to uh, complicate things even further, but I wonder whether it's just a virtue ethics theory, because your guidelines mm. read mm. to me as a list of virtues mm. that mm. Um, you can propose as, as mm. the basic virtues for, you know, a, a, like a professional ethical or a, a more a, um, ethic um, code of practice for any profession yeah. in, in science or, or in Yeah, in I think this is Alistair McIntyre, isn't it, who's pushed this, but the virtue ethics. Um, but I want to go further than the virtue ethics in that uh, I also am platonic in the sense that I think there is a reality and a greatness and a wonder um, that we're not just left to total relativism. So I'm really against even religious Christian people who are situational ethicists or those who are emotivist, because I think the foundations are questionable, and as you look at them, they begin to crumble. So that's how I'd come back on that question. But I like, yeah, virtue ethics is a good route where we nominate what our substance of ethics is. I, I've nominated agape as mine. Um, my, can I just yeah, yeah. sure. I would like to go back to the example of, of the embryo, and I was, um, if, if you think that you can apply, it would be interesting to show us how by applying your guidelines we could answer the question of the, the, the embryo question, what should, what should the, the three surgeons do in this particular case, and what would be uh, the acceptable answer if we take, if we follow the six um, guidelines and the six um, principles for that. That, that, that would be, I think, a very interesting example <coughs> to see in, in practice. Yeah. I think you'd have to give an example, wouldn't you, of where you had a difficulty with a problem. Like, I've got a doctor in Australia at the moment who is endeavouring to use these empirical cognitive principles in his um, department of thoracic medicine. And um, it's very, very interesting how, um, and he's actually using it to when they're in the team working all together. Um, but they have got to pinpoint with what the issue is and where the dilemma arises. I think if you try and solve um, build Rome in a day, it, it isn't uh, possible. So I don't know if I, you can sort of state a problem specifically that people here might like to have a go at. I was I was just going to I mean, the problem was like the one that you uh, you put on on your um, <coughs> slide like the problem of what should we do about the Alzheimer's the Alzheimer's yeah yeah and using gangrios to to treat Alzheimer's oh, yeah. disease yeah um, so it would have been I think it, it, it would be interesting to see how by using your six principles you can answer this oh yeah this this dilemma yes, yes. So, uh, I, I think, like well, the first thing to do is to tease out all the issues which are fairly well done in that example, and then they let the philosopher opt out without saying what she thinks. Well, I, I, I'm not sure philosophers do quite do that. And, uh, they couldn't say, I mean, people would think that she was absolutely lacking in compassion if she just says, well, sorry, blokes, it's up to you now. <laughs> Um, because you're or, or saying, you know, you're the surgeons. But on the other hand, to say, well, you're never going to get those surgeons to talk together. I think you've got to get back 
to unpacking the utilitarian person and the values and the foundations on which utilitarianism is being built. And one thing I wanted to put a slide in at the end of this, um, my uh, overhead, was to say, given the empirical cognitive principles, what, how, how, do, how could a position like emotivism, utilitarianism, pragmatism um, work in this situation? And I think you've got to test the theories, and each one of those doctors had a theory, and uh, not just their medicine. Okay, I'll take so, these mm. I think we, have, we want to have a final question. Uh, well, we might have time to have drinks, so oh, come yes. back. They're very important to have our drinks. <laughs> uh, you, please correct me if I'm wrong, I think you referred to yourself at the start as a pragmatic realist, and then later as slightly platonic. Um, so would you assert that the application of this empirical-cognitivist approach, um, and alongside kind of interdisciplinary conversation and dialectic, um, would you assert that, that would lead to some sort of um, that that would always lead to some sort of resolution and some sort of truth um, in the end? Do you think there's something that is to be uncovered from that? Yeah. No, I don't think it will always lead to truth. Um, but it's got like that last quote I gave. We've got more hope of getting there. Um, and I don't like to call. I'm called all sorts of things by philosophers. <laughs> I don't quite know what I am, I just call myself Margaret actually, um, but uh, all the philosophers I get, I try to avoid, um, but, um, but um, on the other hand I know we must work very closely with philosophers, it's actually an adequate philosophy we all need now in the academic arena and in the diplomatic one to progress forward, but we will not find answers necessarily, but we've got more hope of at least agreeing to differ and be amenable to each other without running, d destroying each other. And the, it then comes down to a thing that would have to be, say, tolerance, which is part of compassion, etc. So I hope that does give some kind of direction to your, yeah. your question. Okay, thank you very much, Mary. We have some uh, wine, so please join me for and Margaret for a glass of wine. We've also got a dinner booking tonight at Pierre Vatois around the corner. Now, I think a number of people have already signed up for this. If you do want to come along, if you've just decided at the last minute, yes, I want to come to dinner, just let me know, and um, I think we can organise that. So please join us for a glass of wine. <laughs> Uh, fair enough.